This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. After leaving teaching because of some serious burnout, she vowed to build the community she wished existed when she needed it most. She went from classroom teacher to an educational consultant, instructional designer, and six-figure business owner. Now, she's here to help you achieve happiness and work-life balance, whether inside or outside the classroom. Come join our discussion as we talk about managing teacher burnout, career transitions outside the classroom, starting a side hustle, and everything in between. Here's your host of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast and your new personal cheerleader, Daphne Gomez. Welcome to the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Daphne Gomez. I wanted to start with a really quick announcement for all of my podcast listeners. We have just launched the Teacher Career Coach Jobs Board. That is where we are showcasing roles that would be great fits for transitioning teachers from a variety of industries that are hiring now. You can find all of our jobs listed at jobs.teachercareercoach.com. In this episode, we talk to William Mitten. William is a lifelong educator, and he's actually the founder of Canopy, a new learning platform for engaging self-paced courses. William's been a teacher, a coach, a consultant, an instructional designer, and a leader in the nonprofit space. In this episode, we talk all about his background and we dive into becoming an instructional designer. Hi, William. Thank you so much for being here today. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Uh, We have connected on LinkedIn. Uh, We've had some personal conversations. You are very well known when it comes to the teacher transitions uh, circle community kind of on LinkedIn of people who are interested in becoming instructional designers or people who are just looking to connect with those who are thought leaders in ed tech. But for anyone who has not heard of you, do you mind just giving us a couple of sentences about who you are? Yeah, of course. My name is William Minton. First and foremost, I, I'm an educator. I'm now the founder CEO of Canopy Ed, which is a platform that seeks to simplify learning design. It's kind of the, the canva of the learning design world. But before getting into ed tech, I was in education for 15 years, starting out as a eighth grade math teacher through Teach for America, founded and ran youth development organizations, was an instructional coach. And then I spent a year traveling around the world and visiting top ranked schools across five different continents and writing about that experience, um, which was really illuminating. Um, and then I used that to start a consulting shop in 2016, which has evolved into the ed tech company that I run today. Let's talk a little bit about your experience as a classroom teacher. And I think this is how we connected on LinkedIn. I think I might've sent you a cheesy message that just said like, hey, you're a CEO and you are a former teacher. Um, I'd love to connect with anyone who kind of shares that same path. 
what was it about teaching that made you ultimately step out of the classroom? Yeah, so I think relevant to your audience here, I've entered and left the classroom uh, three different times. All right, so I, I entered the classroom because I was recruited by Teach for America um, as sort of a, a social justice mission. I wanted to be a part of empowering people to live the lives that they wanted to live. Um, but very quickly got an education myself in what inequity in the United States really looks like. I was teaching at the lowest performing school in the South Bronx. My class was the lowest level class in the eighth grade um, and just got to see how the brilliance of my students was not given opportunities to flourish by the systems that they were forced into. Um, and it was really soul shattering and after two years of that, I needed to recuperate. Um, and I mean, I did so by moving and helping to start up a nonprofit focused on supporting high potential teens in low performing schools. But these were all teens, again, who are high potential, amazing um, sort of lights in their community, but they didn't have that positive peer community that they needed to really thrive. And so we created a nonprofit to help them with that. After a few years, I began to notice that a lot of our work with these teens was about their school grades and the importance of school. While we were doing great work, we had grown that nonprofit to the point where we could hand it off. And I decided to go back into the classroom to be part of that other part. I'd seen the students we were working with being not served well by their teachers. You know, the teachers weren't bringing out the best in them. And so I decided to go back to the classroom, did that for a couple of years, and then didn't see the career pathways that I wanted, didn't see the opportunity to, to to use my skill sets and have the type of career journey that I wanted to have in the in the classroom teaching space. And so I left again and became an instructional coach. I did that trip around the world. And when I came back from that, I thought I wanted to be a principal. And so I went back to the classroom again with this joint teaching admin role and ended up being at a school that was not what its reputation suggested. It was a mess. And at Thanksgiving, I was like, I can't do this. I never thought I would leave the classroom in Thanksgiving, but going into Thanksgiving break, I told my students that I wouldn't be back. And I started um, my own consulting shop instead. I think that there's a lot of similarities in our own path where it came from not a place of disliking teaching, not even a place of like disliking teaching as a profession, but just environmental circumstances. And I think also the more you probably left the classroom, like dipped your toes into different opportunities, different types of roles, you started to realize you might have been that type of person that really thrives for constant growth and change and like creative freedom. It sounds, I think the entrepreneur journey, creating your own nonprofit, creating your own business shows that you're the type of person that just wants kind of constant growth and teaching can at times just feel like a stagnant career. Once you're good at it, there's always ways that you can adapt and make really innovative lessons, but you do feel somewhat stuck and in a like day-to-day -day routine. Yeah, and the pay scale is definitely stagnant as well. Like there's a very clear cap on that and it's written into the, the law of whatever district that you're in. And yeah, I mean, I love teaching for the creativity part of it. My second year of teaching, I wrote a whole eighth grade math curriculum from scratch that like tripled the number of kids on grade level at my school. When I taught U.S. history, I developed my own curriculum from scratch. I learned so much about U.S. history that year. I was, you know, I loved it. It was fantastic. The idea of how do humans learn? What types of experiences cause us to 
you know, acquire information and then be able to apply that information while also reflecting on who we are in the interpersonal and social emotional and being able to design experiences that help young people become like more full versions of themselves and see their curiosity of the world turn on. Like all of that stuff is incredibly exciting to me. I enjoy it tremendously, but there are sort of limits to, to what you can do with that. And while, you know, I love doing it like, through, through my twenties um, and someone in my early thirties, like if I, I being in my mid forties and doing the same work without having other opportunities, I did, I couldn't see myself in that position. And so I wanted to um, chart new paths while I could, and also try to expand the scale of my impact beyond the room that I was in. Right. And while it's, it's a beautiful thing to have a really profound impact in the room that you're in. I began to see for my own life, the scale of impact that I wanted to have was with people who I've never met, um, which took me to doing policy level and some structural stuff and eventually to technology, which is where I think that you have the biggest potential to scale your impact. Yeah. So I know you were doing, you did instructional design for like districts, unions, teacher prep organizations. Was that when you were doing that policy level work? Yeah, that was the beginning of my consulting practice. And so I've, and I was engaged in the community and like the school board and district administrators, et cetera. And I had these, um, these connections. And then I began to develop stuff for them for free. You know, like they, I had this idea that teacher professional development should be more differentiated, more self-paced and that districts, if they created self-paced, what we call asynchronous now, professional development, they could utilize a flipped model where when you're in the room with other teachers, you should never just be sitting and listening to a presentation. You should be collaborating and engaging and figuring out how to apply the ideas to your unique circumstances. So we should shift all of that explanatory stuff to self-paced pre-work. And then you get together and people are like, here's the data on what we know that you got from the trainings. And so now you can work together in groups and apply these ideas to your unique circumstances. I had this vision of what professional development should look like. Um, and I began to pitch that to the PD leaders that I knew and I offered to do it for free. And so I was able to partner with them to shift them to this flipped PD model. And then as I began to get a reputation and exceed expectations for the effectiveness of that, then people started to reach out to me of like, hey, we have this webinar, but it's a 90 minute webinar and it's kind of dull and we want people to be able to move through it in a more self-paced manner on their own time. What can, can you do something? So I got into the business of people sending us these 90 minute webinars and then we would turn them into these really dynamic self-paced learning experiences that have these like three minute animated videos with engagement activities in between. Um, and it led to more meaningful learning. It was more enjoyable for the learners and it was easier for the facilitators because they didn't have to go around the state doing the same PD over and over and over again. They just sent a link. And so people won on, on all fronts. So that's how I got into that instructional design work. And then when COVID hit, that took off. So there's, you know, also programs and PD organizations that were moving their whole program to online and they wanted to make sure that they did it well. They didn't want to just do these webinars. And so they reached out and then helped them out with that. Yeah, that's something similar to what I was doing with one of my past works as um, when I was working for Microsoft, I was doing the professional development going from school site to school site or speaking at national conferences, just helping people learn how to use it in their classroom. And one thing um, that I did notice were the sessions where you gave 
here's 15 minutes of me explaining what it is, but here's 45 minutes of you actually being able to work on something during this hour that you can take and then use in your classroom. Teachers are so much more appreciative in those types of, if I am, you know, stuck (laughs) sitting in this room for an hour, I'd love to be doing something that I can actually use in my classroom instead of just watching. There's a lot more learning going on in those types of situations. So I think that was a really smart way for you to kind of still have your finger on the pulse of education, but be able to do it in your own unique way and still bring value back to teachers, to classrooms. For that, did you feel like your title was formally instructional designer? And the only reason why I'm asking is a lot of times people do those types of projects and then not realize that what they're doing is instructional design. Yeah, it's funny you ask that because no, I never thought of myself or talked about myself as an instructional designer. I talked about myself as a public sector consultant, right? So I did this for schools, districts, nonprofits, um, city government. But what I was doing was instructional design, and that's what they were hiring me to to do. I don't think they ever actually searched for an instructional designer and then found me. They had a scope of work that they needed done, and they had heard about my work or had seen it, and so they reached out to me directly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that is funny. That's I didn't really ever feel like I was qualified to be an instructional designer myself. I had already created a couple of e-learning courses. And then when I applied to the first instructional design position, they were looking at my resume and they're like, oh yeah, you, you have experience. And I always felt that same level of imposter syndrome of, do I really truly have experience in this particular field? But I think it's a common misconception is that your job title has to formally say that you were a blank because even with that specific experience that's a lot of you know project management that you were also overseeing at the exact same time as instructional design not as much as leading different teams but in the same way of the project being itself chunking this into a completely different material like this is a product and I'm turning it into a new product. That's a lot of project management that you're doing also. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I would talk about project management as sort of like a service that I would, could offer. Um, but the projects being managed were these instructional design projects. And I mean, I had a lot of expertise in the matters that I was writing the scripts for these trainings on, but more often than not, I was working with what we call subject matter experts, which is just their staff who created the PowerPoint decks they had beforehand and figure and working with them to make sure what I was creating wasn't my idea of you know what it means to be a trauma-informed educator, but was I was channeling what they were trying to say in as honest a way that was true to true to their voice as possible. Um, and that experience of collaborating with them, which again in instructional design speak is working with your SMEs, um, was was really valuable. And of course now I do talk like that because it's been you know years have gone by and I still do some instructional design work around topics that I'm passionate about but it, it's interesting how, how they came about and I also I think it also speaks to 
the rise of instructional design as a profession and as a category. More and more organizations are realizing how important ongoing learning and development is, and they're having to create pathways for their own people as well as you know their users or external clients create these really effective pathways to to train and develop folks. And as that becomes more important to all organizations across the board, you're seeing this rise of the instructional design role. And I think it's going to become more prevalent and more important in years to come so that a theoretical version of myself, you know, a few years in the future from the very beginning would obviously know they were doing instructional design because it's just much more out there in the vocabulary now than it was four or five years ago. Yeah, I think training and development or learning and development um, departments are so important to the health of a company, but things are moving to be more virtual, to be, you know, at your own pace. It's a growing industry where I feel like there's a lot more demand for it than there was even, you know, five years ago, probably. But it also is one of the most competitive fields for teachers to get into right now, because so many people have that on their radar as the only career choice that they really are looking for is just instructional design work. And so it's making it a little bit um, more competitive. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the most competitive job market for instructional design roles that there's ever been. There are many more roles open than there have ever been before, but I think that that is more than canceled out by the number of people applying for those roles has increased even more quickly and more dramatically. The advice that I always give people when it comes to, um, Standing out in a really competitive job market is making sure that you're showing that you are 100% committed to this particular job. Even if you secretly on the back end are committed to two or three different job paths, making sure that you show the hiring manager, you know, I'm so committed to instructional design that here's the upskilling that I've done about instructional design. Here's my portfolio. Here's all the learning I've done on my own end. So it helps alleviate concerns and you're marketing yourself to that specific position. You're not telling the hiring manager, I'm open to customer support, instructional design, or project management, because then they're never going to see you as the instructional designer at that particular place. Yeah. What types of things would you add to that list? Yeah, well, just on, on that point, I get messages every day from people that say, you know, I've been a teacher for this number of years and I've gained these skills and I realized that my real passion is instructional design. I really love what you're doing with insert company name here. <laughs> Would love to get together and talk sometime. And there's, it's this like pseudo customization because they've taken the time to like put my name at the top and like insert my company name there. But it is so obvious that this is a copy and pasted email that they're sending out to like a uh, hundred people. And it, it, it screams, um, that they're casting a wide net. And maybe that's successful for people sometimes. You would probably know better than me, but I don't um, I don't engage with those with those emails. However, sometimes people will write and they will say something meaningful about something of mine they've seen or something that's a unique experience that they've had with our product. Um, and it's clear that they have actually really customized this message for me. Um, and even though we're not hiring at the moment, I always give those people a personalized reply because they've given me a personalized message. Um, and that's really the only way to like actually get, get noticed or, or taken seriously. And I know it takes a lot more time to do that, but I think that the, the overall payoff will be better, especially when it's so crowded. Well, I think that it's, we call it like the spray and pay method of like rapid fire sending as many 
messages as possible, but it's not something that I've ever necessarily recommended. I feel like taking that time to do quality over quantity really pays off in the long end. And we also were hiring on our end and saw something very similar. Um, when we were hiring for a customer support person, we had a job description up and the job description said that we were specifically looking for someone who really enjoys supporting other people. They don't have to have formal customer support experience, but the, one of the characteristics is maybe being that person that like their friends would always reach out to for support. We made it very clear, like this is a position where you have to really love people and want to help teachers. You're going to be answering a lot of their questions. That's the, that's what's going to make you great at this position. And so I got hundreds of messages that said, I'm going to be a perfect fit for your insert role um, at insert company because I am a teacher. And then they just sent it. And then there were some that were very clearly articulated, like, this is the right role for me because I am that person that for the last three years, you know, I have gone out of my way to mentor other teachers while I'm even in my own transition process. It's just something that is so important to me, blah, blah, blah. And all of those specific details really helps them stand out above the rest. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to people reaching out for you, you're not hiring for anyone right now necessarily, but they're just kind of reaching out to you as the CEO of this company, just to kind of put their foot in the door of maybe potentially becoming an instructional designer for you. Are they asking for any specific feedback at the same time? It's funny you say that. I ha I don't think I've ever had somebody who's asked me to give them feedback in one of those messages. Um, it's generally talking about um, what I can do for them, <laughs> as in like offering them a job. Um, sometimes what they could do for, for the company. But no, no one has ever asked me, you know, I'm thinking about this. What are some advice that you have going into the field? Now, I give that advice, you know, freely. So maybe they've seen that and that's why they're reaching out to me. But yeah, interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. It, I mean, I think it is presumptuous to just rapid send it to a stranger and say, hey, give me feedback right now. <laughs> so it, it makes sense that they haven't necessarily asked, but I had to ask just in case there was any tidbits that you've been giving. What's some of your favorite advice that you have kind of shared more widely on LinkedIn for those trying to break into instructional design? Yeah, so instructional design, a lot of the concepts from instructional design uh, are very similar to concepts in teaching, but they have different words. Um, so like the biggest thing in instructional design is the process of ADDI, where you analyze design, develop, implement, evaluate. And people know that teachers can implement trainings, right? And you want to explain how you've implemented stuff successfully, but most teachers, it's assumed that they know how to implement or even to you know, so develop the materials of what the training should include. The A and the E, the analyze and evaluate part of it, teachers spend a tremendous amount of time analyzing what you know reading levels you know children are on or analyzing the gaps in somebody's knowledge and then you know looking at post tests or exit tickets to evaluate effectiveness and then using that data to inform future instructions. Like teachers do that all the time, but because hiring managers never saw their own teachers do that through the 13 years that they were in school, they don't know that teachers do that, right? Their, their experience with teachers with being a teenager and sitting and watching somebody, you know, implement training. Um, and so I think really emphasizing the A and the E and Addy, emphasizing your analysis skills, emphasizing your evaluation skills 
is one of those things that can help differentiate you from all the other resumes that are saying like, oh, I designed and implemented this program. You should have that experience and you should mention it, but if you want to emphasize the A and the E to help, help yourself stand out a little bit more. Something else that I say is just make sure that this is the role that you want um, and figure out what type of instructional design that you want to do. Instructional design roles are as different as teaching roles. Like, I mean, it's kind of humorous that, you know, a kindergarten teacher in a rural community has the same job title as a high school teacher in an urban community. Like those jobs, doing those jobs are so completely different and the skill sets are so completely different, but they're both called teacher. And you can think of this similarly for instructional design work. Some instructional designers are just like tweaking PowerPoints that have made by other people. Sometimes you're making original PowerPoints and kind of sending them into a void for other trainers to do. Sometimes you're going back through like an old training and doing like this little tweak update to it. But sometimes you are able to work with a subject matter expert and come up with a really you know, dynamic set of experiences and ideas for different tools to use to implement those experiences. And it can be this like really engaging experience around a topic that you're really interested in. But sometimes you might have to create you know, instruction on something you're not that interested in, right? Like the, the experience, you know, small organization versus large organization focused more on straight training of like how to do the skill versus development work, which is more about mindsets and you know, proactive problem solving. All this stuff is, is just a huge range in the profession. So number one, make sure that you want to be an instructional designer and this is the type of work that you want to do. But then beyond that, like, do I want to be at a big organization or a small organization? An organization that focuses on training, an organization that focuses more um, on development. Um, and like think through these different angles so that you can sort of target what you're, the, what you're focused on. Because what you don't want is, is to think, oh, once I'm out of the classroom and I have this job, my life will be so much better. And then find yourself six months down the line, be like, oh, actually, I'm like pretty miserable here too. Ah. <laughs> yeah, no, I that so much good advice there. There was something that really stuck out to me when you were talking about how they could stand out by demonstrating in their um, interview, their analysis. And one other point that I wanted to add to that is something as simple as just creating one or two learning resources, but geared towards adults to have in your portfolio. And, you know, there, there are so many people who are on a time crunch. And if you're looking for instructional design work, you may be thinking, all I have to do is revamp my resume, throw it in there, and I should get a response. They understand that as a teacher, I can create these learning resources. If you are using anything that you used in the classroom, that's not geared towards uh, teachers, adults, parents, it is pretty much a red flag, but I would always lean towards create something totally new and unique for a completely different industry if you're applying for a different type of industry so that they're able to see you. Yeah, I would build off of that. I would say whenever possible, try to do real work for a real partner. And this is easier than you might think it would be, especially if you offer to do it for free. So, I mean, this could be at your school. So like, hey, you know, we've should have a family onboarding training for like when families join the school, like what, how do we teach them about what it's like to be a family member at the school or, you know, a training, a professional development internal to, to your staff or reach out to a community nonprofit and ask them if they do any training or 
um, development work with their own team or as part of their mission in the community and offer to build them something. They will most likely be excited that you have offered to do this for them. And it should be done for free. And then once you've done it, you will, number one, have learned a lot because while there is overlap with teaching and instructional design, they are quite different and you will learn what is different by actually doing the work. But then you'll be able to talk about how you did this real work with a partner in your interviews, which is really powerful. And again, that can help differentiate you from folks who might not have that. Another thing that I heard you talk about that I wanna kind of dive into a little bit more is um, depending on the type of company that you are at, job duties are gonna be different. First point that I wanna talk about is um, job duties are different from like basically every company even. Like a customer support position at company A and a customer support position at company C could be far more different than you would really understand until you are in those unique atmospheres. But there are completely different things when it comes to like large companies versus startup companies. I've worked for both and now I own a startup company. What have you seen when it comes to the way that employees actually work at startups? Like what would make someone successful wanting to work in a startup company when it comes to their personality versus someone who's working at like a larger company? Good question. I think that's important because especially if people are trying to leave teaching because it's it's too much and they just want something a little bit more stable it's more dependable and then startup probably isn't the the way to go i mean startups are are scrappy i mean there's always more work to do than time to do it and the work doesn't neatly fall into people's job descriptions i mean we're looking for people who are really passionate about the mission of what we're up to and are really excited about how about building better ways for technology to enhance education and who want to think creatively outside of you know the managerial meeting we had at the beginning of the week like here's what you're going to do and the items where they think creatively like generate ideas um experiment with with um you know implementing some of these ideas on their own and really be willing to do everything that's needed and think creatively the reward and the upside that you get for that is as an early employee, then you are often able to get actual equity in the company. Like you own some amount of the company. And so if the company ever goes to IPO or there's a there's an exit because it gets purchased, then you have the ability to make you know, more than a year's salary just from that from that transaction. And so we're looking for people who are passionate about building the company because they actually own part of the company um, and it's in their interest to, to do that. Whereas in a much larger, larger organization, they are really looking for someone to just like more narrowly do their job description in a competent way and might or might not be open to, you know, creativity and innovative ideas. Yeah, I love that. When it when you said the word scrappy, I think that's a great word. Um, with a startup, in my own perspective of, you know, owning a startup and seeing what types of people have like thrived working for team teacher career coach, we value autonomy. People are given a lot of control over their day to day actions, how they get things done. But everybody on our team is basically a self-starter. If they see a problem, they're the types of people that like to go out of their way to figure out how to solve that problem. Even if it's just a, okay, this workflow isn't working for some reason, it's a little bit clunky. Now I'm going to learn 
different types of project management strategies to try and help everybody figure out a workflow that's better, even if that wasn't in their job duties. It's just the types of people who are really thriving where there are people who really do, they they want, you know, like a firm handbook of how everything is supposed to work. And if you're coming from a work environment that you were really mentally drained and you don't feel like you have the bandwidth to go in somewhere and, and make all these decisions on your own, you might want to go somewhere for the first year, two years outside of the classroom where there's that onboarding guide. There's someone who's going to walk you through step-by-step how to do everything. But a startup does come with a lot of perks of you're going to have probably pretty quickly some impressive duties that you're able to actually put on your resume should in two years you're looking for a different type of position as well. Being part of a startup definitely allows you to acquire many more skills much more quickly um, and allows you to have a lot more stories about how you creatively work to solve problems or figure things out. I think the way you put it, being a self-starter and a creative thinker is a really good description for um, a profile of someone who would be good at a startup. Um, I hesitate to talk about personality because when we say personality, you tend to think about so like how much or little someone talks and then what how enthusiastic they are when they talk. Um, and I think that has very little to do with it. It has a lot more to do with that ability to to think proactively and to. Oh, that's yeah, that's a great point. At our team, definitely, there's a couple of us who are mouthy, and they're probably listening, and they know who they are. That they're outspoken like me, and then some who are more more reserved, very <laughs> shy, but also still have those same characteristics of self-starter, love thinking outside the box and doing things for themselves. But the mouthy people know who they are for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I just emphasize that so that we know that people come in um, sort of all all different you know, containers. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great point. I want to talk a little bit more about Canopy Ed, uh, the platform that you built and what you've been doing, like why you built this platform specifically. Let's start there. Yeah, so Canopy is a platform for individuals, organizations that want a simpler way to design engaging self-paced learning experiences. We built it because online learning is at this inflection point. The expectations for the depth of learning in an online format are increasing, right? We want more out of our online learning strategies, both as facilitators and as learners. Um, And the pre-COVID tech was not really built for deep, durable learning and development. It was built to do these like compliance driven, like I went through this training, it's a single use disposable training, it's it's complete now and I'm done with it and we can say that I did the training. Or you wanna create something really dynamic and so you need to have 12 different apps open and 12 different browsers and I'm gonna bring in this activity from this app and this activity from this app and I'm gonna make sure that people are engaging in all these like different ways but then number one, it's stressful and time consuming to put together. And number two, the learner experience is distracted and fragmented because even though you've done these nice engaging tools, um, they're still jumping around from different tabs and they end up thinking as much about the tech as they do about the content and that's distracting, right? So you have either this like, you know, self-contained compliance driven training modules, or you have this fragmented array of external platforms and you do this like browser acrobatics to go through a training. Um, we thought that you could create a more holistic vision for how technology can enhance education. And so with Canopy, we brought together over 20 different 
engagement tools into a single intuitive interface that makes it super easy to design meaningful learning experiences and makes it really clear for learners how they go through it and allows them to focus on the content. We developed Canopy to help realize the promise of technology for what it could do for education. Technology has a lot more to offer education than, than what's been seen so far. And I'm afraid that a lot of the experience with technology and education the last couple of years has led people to be like, oh, it doesn't work. Like we tried that, it was stressful, it wasn't sustainable. We're gonna go back to what we knew beforehand. And I was just wrote something about this earlier today. Like if you go to like 1888 and you're like, oh, like research has shown that automobiles are less reliable and not as fast as cars, right? Like you, you could have said that, right? The research would have shown that but that doesn't take into account the, the future innovation. And I think that a lot of the reason people have had this experience of learning online not being sustainable and being too stressful is because they were limited by the technology. They didn't have a tool like Canopy when the pandemic started, but now they do. And the people that were using it are seeing that their lives are just a lot simpler and, and more joyous when they create these learning experiences and go through them. I think there's a lot of tech frustration. And I think that there's also a good amount of trauma of being thrown into, you have to learn all these things really quickly. And there's a lot at stake to learn all these different platforms. And so people are hesitant to learn new platforms. But when you look at what you did learn, what you, what you did use, what you did implement, how it worked and how it was impactful and what you didn't like about it, and then start to kind of tweak it and, and find new platforms that actually can do all the things, that's something that I'm really geeky and passionate about is I go down the rabbit hole and I just keep learning more and more platforms to find the ones that do exactly what I want them to do. So I know that there, there are people who are going to, even the tech resistant, start to look at the platforms that are actually doing all the things that they didn't have the time and the space to actually evaluate two years ago. And yeah. I think Canopy is definitely one of those types of platforms that kind of crosses all the T's and dots all the I's. Yeah, you shouldn't need so many different tools, right? You shouldn't need every tool for each little thing, right? So what we're doing, trying to do with Canopy is create one platform to replace many. It might not replace 100% of them, but it will replace many of them. That simplifies the overall experience. And the other thing I'll say based off of what you just mentioned is that we do think of ourselves as like a Canva for learning design. So like Canva, think about Canva and Adobe. Canva didn't get people who love Adobe to stop loving Adobe. It didn't get large organizations that you know have professional graphic designers to like move away from Adobe. What Canva did was it created this whole new category for individuals and small mid-sized organizations so that they could create professional quality graphic design. And that's what we're doing. All these small and mid-sized organizations are beginning to use Canopy because they can create meaningful learning experiences in a way that they couldn't before. Or to do so before, they would have had to get like a full-time system administrator to run their, you know, enterprise LMS with all these other apps plugged into it. And, you know, that person's, that's their whole job. Whereas with Canopy, just like with Canva, like the one person who kind of likes doing graphic design can now do that, like in, with, along with everything else they were doing before. So you're focused on both organizations that are doing learning and development for training and onboarding of like new employees, potentially for customers, client resources as well. And then you also have people who are using it inside their classrooms and even for their own like instructional design portfolios, right? Yes, we created a, a flexible learning design platform. So we have a small and mid-sized organizations are one of our largest growing groups. We also have a lot of people who are using it for professional development and we have a number of people using it in their, in their classroom. 
But the professional development angle, I think probably because it's easier for people to use a new product for PD than it is to go through the process of getting something into the classroom. We're, we're seeing people really enjoy it for PD. And then again, all these small mid-sized organizations that really wanted to raise the bar for their learning strategies and they didn't have the right tool to do it, right? That's Kajabi, it's not really built for that. They going through like getting Canvas or Schoology or something is like a kind of a bit much. And we're really good solution for that and allows everybody to raise the bar. So they're not just doing webinars and sending out a webinar recording. They're able to do something much more interesting and dynamic and get better analytics off it as well. This has been such a jam packed episode. I know there are probably so many people who are looking to learn a little bit more. Where would be the best place for teachers who are looking to learn a little bit more to find resources? For Canopy specifically, you can check out canopyeducation.com. As far as instructional design, there's a really great supportive LinkedIn um, group that you have to ask to be a member of. You'll be let in, no problem. For It's called Teaching to Instructional Design, something like that. It's just a supportive community of people who are asking these types of questions of each other. Devlin Peck's uh, YouTube channel is really great. He has a really strong track record of helping people transition into instructional design roles. Is um, it Teaching a Path to Learning and Development, or is it a different group? That sounds right. For the group um, there's this great linkedin group called teaching a path to learning and development let me double check that while we're on here yeah teaching a path to lnd but yeah and devlin peck's youtube channel is phenomenal it has a lot of really great free resources yeah so you can get everything you need through the free resources there and then he has more in-depth courses where he'll give you actual feedback etc if you want to go through that but there, there are a number of resources out there but the biggest thing I would suggest is finding a partner that you can do real work for, probably a community nonprofit or a training that you think that your school could use um, and actually build that out and, and have real people go through it. Thank you so much, William. It's been so great to chat with you again. Look forward to connecting in the future. Excellent. Thank you, Nevin. I want to give a huge thank you to William for coming on and sharing his story. If you're looking for more resources on learning instructional design, make sure to head back to episode nine of the Teacher Career Coach podcast, where we do a deeper dive into this specific career path. Thank you so much for being a listener, and we'll see you on the very next episode of the Teacher Career Coach podcast. Mm-hmm.